You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 12th of October 2022 on Monocle 24. Strikes in France, we're as shocked as you are. The world looks ahead to the Congress of the Chinese Communist Party, even if it can't see anything. And at what point should it be permissible to plaster great works of art on overpriced T-shirts? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Terry Stiasny and Jonathan Fenby will be here to discuss all the day's big stories and we'll hear from the author Edward Wilson Lee about his new book, A Murder Mystery Set in 16th Century Lisbon. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I'm joined today by Jonathan Fenby, a consultant on China and a former newspaper editor, and by Terry Stiasny, political journalist and author. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Um, This is the traditional light introductory banter plus items for sale segment of the show. Uh, Jonathan, by tremendous happenstance you have written several books on france and china both of which we will be discussing many of which are still in print your books that is not france and china they are in print and they are on sale at all good bookshops as we say i have written eight books on china and four on france okay that's 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 more than most people have read on either of those subjects (laughs) well i hope everybody's read all of them yes Um, are there any in particular you would like to recommend If, if, if you were to be able to plug one french one and one china one which ones would you plug Well, uh, in both cases, I've written histories of each country in in the modern era. Uh, In France, uh, starting with the revolution. In China, starting really with the decline of the Qing Empire, the first opium wars, and so on. So I would recommend absolutely heartily, if you've got a fair amount of time, the history of modern China, which runs to 900 pages, and the history of modern France, which only run, which runs to only 474 pages. That's, that's a solid weekend reading for somebody. <laughs> I, 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 will, so. I, I will also throw in a bonus recommendation of your excellent biography of Chiang Kai-shek, which I did read many, many years ago while travelling in Taiwan. A biography of Chiang Kai-shek and a biography of Charles de Gaulle. Two generals, but I'm not a military historian. I think I've read that one as well, actually. Good. Now that I think of it. Run away and read it quickly. Um, Terry, uh, are you able to go into any further detail about the super-secret project to which you (laughs) alluded infuriatingly last time you were here? (laughs) I am trying to catch up with Jonathan, and I haven't written nearly as many books. Uh, So I am working on one which, as you say, must remain secret. It's, it's It's about secrets and it's about lies which i know it's fairly broad it's not really narrowing it down but uh i I think i I think that's an enticing pitch do you know do you know when (laughs) you will be able to let us know anymore not quite yet no well Well, it's very tempting because now we'll spend the rest of the program trying to unearth (laughs) details exactly Uh, alert listeners may discern clues scattered throughout (laughs) the ensuing discussion of current affairs which will start in france where there are strikes and yes later in the show we'll be looking at italy where there 
there is spaghetti, Switzerland where there are cuckoo clocks, Australia where there are kangaroos, and listeners are welcome to further amuse themselves with their own invocations of cheap national stereotypes. These particular French strikes are, however, noteworthy. Those downing tools are French oil refinery workers who not only want a 7% pay rise to cover inflation, but a further 3% by way of their fair share of the loot which their employers are currently coining. Um, Terry, do they have a case not so much for the inflation in line with inflation pay rise, which seems basically fair enough, I think, but the extra on top of that in recognition that their employers are currently making quite a lot of money? Uh, yeah, I suppose there's an argument for it in a way that it, they're almost arguing for sort of like a windfall tax that mm. goes directly to the mm. employees, you know, rather than going back into the, the government coffers saying, well, you know, we should have a bit of kind of profit sharing. Um, but it's a bit of a hard, that was probably more of a hard argument for the rest of France who are currently queuing up at petrol stations to, to buy, that, so that they should be, you know, you know pay, paying their high petrol prices in order for the, the oil refinery workers to, to share in the wealth, which not everybody uh, is sharing in. Um, but I think obviously they know that they're in a fairly strong position. I mean, blockading French oil refineries, as you say, kind of happens fairly often, and they know it's quite a good tactic to to get make the country stop. But I think what's different here is that the government is really kind of threatening to to crack down on them mm. and and to try and force the workers to go back to work, which is not often something that they do. Uh, Jonathan, you have recently been in France, mm. perchance, who knows, researching for a fifth <laughs> book uh, on the subject. Could be. Uh, did, did, did you glean? anything about which way public sympathy is is tending on this there's a lot of public sympathy with uh, unions uh, strikers on the inflation front certainly there's no doubt with inflation high uh, in france and it is very very much felt um but i'm not sure in this particular case that uh, there's a lot of sympathy on top of that uh, for the workers at the refineries particularly uh, if it leads to closure of petrol stations and long queues the french get very as we saw with the gilets jaunes they, they get very very uh, antsy pantsy uh, <laughs> if if they can't use their cars uh, terry is this sort of thing do you think likely to catch on elsewhere across europe especially if this coming winter is as cold and dark and expensive as it's widely assumed that it's going to be because the workers do have quite a strong hand here don't they especially if and they are across most of europe uh, labor markets are fairly tight even mm. though french unemployment is generally quite high it is presently at a 13 year low and of course oil refinery work and energy sector work is generally fairly specialized this is not something people can just walk off the street and do uh, no, I mean, I think we are we are seeing this. We're certainly uh, seeing it in, in France. We're seeing it in this country, for instance, um, rail rail strikes, um, mm. you know, all sorts strikes in all sorts of, of different industries where they're trying to persuade the government that, look, you know, with inflation pushing 10%, that wages need to rise faster. Um, and yeah, in France, I think you're already seeing people queuing up. You're seeing uh, petrol stations just simply running out of fuel. You're seeing prices in the ones that have got fuel left going up massively. And again, yeah, I think that's not going to be uh, popular with, with the general public. But it's, it depends whether, you know, you're in an industry where it is, you know, relatively easy to say. I mean, if you're a, a train driver, for instance, it is easier for you to, to stop the country uh, going about its business than it is if you're in a, in, a, in a less crucial industry. And I think that's going to be, you know, the, the, what the trade unions are trying to look at, and you know, to try and combat inflation. Yeah, Jonathan, uh, President Emmanuel Macron of France has so far been urging the 
the companies to listen to the workers while also urging the workers to work. Um, is that line going to hold for him forever, or at some point is the political reality going to mandate that he picks a side? I think the political reality is going to dictate that he takes measures to stop the strikes, basically. Now, that is a hazardous uh, path to follow, of course. Uh, he's been talking a lot about the need for dialogue. He doesn't have a parliamentary majority. And there's no doubt that the main trade union federation, the CGT, is anxious to assert itself. It's mm. been losing ground over the last few years. And uh, it, it, it definitely wants strikes to reassert its position as a leading force on the left. And just a final thought on this one, Terry, and it, it goes back a bit to what Jonathan was talking about earlier, about the degree to which public sympathy might ended up, end up getting tested uh, by the inconvenience occasioned by these strikes. How mindful of that do unions need to be? And, and for example, bringing it back to this country, do you think the rail unions here so far have judged it more or less correctly? Uh, I think uh, people have generally got quite a lot of sympathy for a lot of the unions when they say, look, you know, and everyone is having problems uh, with the cost of living. Um, I think in the French situation, what's going to happen? I mean, we, you know, Jonathan mentioned the, the Gilets Jaunes. One of their sort of pet peeves was about the cost of fuel. It was, and what made people really cross was small business people saying, look, we're not able to go and do our jobs. We are prevented mm. from working because we can't fill up, our, fill up our vans with petrol. I think if the impact of these strikes goes on long enough that other industries then find that they can't work because they're simply not able to get the fuel and other people are finding that they're mm. put out of jobs that's going to lose them um, a lot of sympathy if this, if this carries on in the longer term. Yeah, Andrew, you, you mentioned earlier that i just come back from France. Um, I should mention that my wife and myself spent a Sunday afternoon driving all over <laughs> rural areas of central France looking for petrol. And this wasn't because of any strike. It was simply because there were no petrol stations. Did you do this in a little Citroen with a with a rolled back? No, no, no. We had a we had a modern car that was beyond oh, my capacity because I couldn't understand it. it. It drove itself, but it still couldn't find any petrol stations. Well, moving along later this week, arguably the most powerful political enterprise on earth will undertake its crucial twice a decade conclave, and it will be very close to impossible for the rest of us to find out what occurred therein. The National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party begins in the Great Hall of the people in Beijing this Sunday. It is generally assumed that this Congress will award a third five-year term as president to Xi Jinping and widely expected that it will discuss such matters as Taiwan, China's lagging economic growth and the sagacity or otherwise of its zero-COVID policy, but listeners may take a wild guess as to the level of independent scrutiny. Um, Jonathan, first of all to the, the headline there, is there the remotest chance that Xi Jinping does not emerge from this with a third term in his pocket no <laughs> he is bound to get it but it's the third term it's not as president i mean this is often he's often described as president xi jinping what this will give him is a third term as general secretary of the communist party which is a much more important job that is the most important job in china he gets a new presidency uh, at the meeting of the legislature next march but 
uh, he has made over the last 10 years, he has made building up the party and the party's power and the party's grip on the citizens of China his prime uh, focus. Unfortunately, he's now running into problems with COVID, the effects of the zero tolerance policy, the slowing economy, which is linked to that, of course, a huge property crisis, uh, which is going on, and other underlying um, problems uh, and challenges uh, such as the demographics, more Chinese getting old and fewer young Chinese coming into the labor force uh, and the ongoing uh, ch- confrontation with the United States, which has just come, become much worse with new U.S. sanctions on vital uh, IT, high-grade semiconductors, which China definitely needs for its modernization. Uh, We will pick up on a few of those issues, issues, in fact, uh, shortly. But, Terry, first of all, to the Congress itself, for all the opacity that we have just discussed, do we imagine, or at least perhaps fondly hope, that behind the scenes it is just as much the vicious backstabbing bun fight as any American party convention or any British party conference. Yes, but you know, I think the thing this time around is that apparently we'll learn even less about it or see even less of it than we normally would precisely because of all the COVID restrictions and they're allowing fewer people in to actually see any of the any of the sort of the front of house um, proceedings. But yeah, I'm sure, you know, the politics, there's no politics anywhere in the world that isn't sort of <laughs> surrounded by backstabbing and people are wondering about who their successor would be and jostling for position about who, you know, might come next after this uh, third five-year term, which I think, you know, is something... I would love to know who is who is standing there sort of waiting in the wings and presumably people worrying about, you know, is China's position secure? You know, more countries like the UK sort of deciding that they're considering China as more of a strategic threat and changing changing their view. Well, she uh, carried out a purge in the security, at the top mm. of the security ministry um, a couple of weeks ago. And that's the kind of, you know, that epitomizes his control over the security services and over the army, which are the vital power players uh, in this. Of course, uh, there are ambitions, there is backstabbing and so on, but uh, we don't see very much of it. And eventually you may see it in somebody's diaries if they're smuggled out to the West, uh, but uh, don't hold your breath. I I just want to pick up on uh, something Terry raised, which was the the spectre of the COVID restrictions rather than Mm. COVID-19 itself at this point, which still looms over this Congress and indeed over China as a whole. Do you get any sense that once Xi is safely ensconced in his third five-year term that he might uh, undertake an amount of rethinking on a few things? Because this zero-COVID thing, they can't Mm. possibly think this can work forever, can they? No, and that would be the logic. But, you know... preaching logic to the Chinese Communist Party (laughs) is not something that gets you very far. And interestingly, there's been a series of articles in the party newspaper, the chief party newspaper, the People's Daily, over the last week or so, saying how wonderful zero tolerance is and how the the policy from the leader is the only possible way to go and he's he's made this this the covid restrictions have become almost part of the ideology of xi jinping part of xi, what's known as xi jinping thought but but terry in in terms of china's role in the world doesn't that end up effectively well detaching china from the part it hoped to play if nobody can go in and nobody can go out 
It does make things uh, difficult. I mean, look at the impact on the like the supply chains in the rest of the world in terms of goods and things trying to get in and out. Um, but it also it gives the government an extra means of control and an extra excuse to have more controls on its citizens. I mean, when you hear about you know the level of quarantine, the amount of time that people have to spend secluded. I remember hearing from a, a friend who'd been in China sort of at the beginning of COVID. You know, not even being allowed out of your house with your children yeah. be quarantined, and you, someone would come and take your rubbish away from your front door and then tape your door up again to make sure that you go in. You know, in a country that likes having, you know, facial recognition technology, it likes knowing what its citizens are doing at all times. This is an extra way of doing that and an extra excuse that you have to do it. Yeah, and it fits in with Xi's, one of Xi's policy, which is self-reliance. And mm. in the end, that means decoupling from uh, dependency on the West and particularly of the United States. The trouble is that China isn't quite ready to decouple just, you know, make me good, but not quite yet, um, applies. Uh, just a final thought on this one, uh, Jonathan, because it will doubtless be discussed behind closed doors, at least, which is what China's attitude in practical terms to Taiwan and the reintegration of it mm. uh, currently is. Um, Xi Jinping, as we've been discussing, is about to be awarded a third term. It does seem like he is the kind of person who takes a keen interest uh, in his own place in history. Mm -hmm. Is he going to feel obliged at some point to make uh, some sort of capstone legacy gesture and might he be thinking of Taiwan as it? Uh, not yet, at any rate, not for a few years. Anyway, uh, an invasion of Taiwan, I think, would, would not work from a military point of view. And then you've got the question of occupying an island of 23 million people who basically don't want to be occupied uh, and resistance and all the problems. And Ukraine has brought that even more uh, alive, I think, to Xi Jinping. So he'll go on talking about Taiwan. He may try blockades. He may try economic pressure. But I think a full-scale invasion is still very unlikely. Well, let's move along and take a look at Saudi Arabia. And since the first oil well gushed from Saudi sands in 1938, the House of Saud's pitch to the world has essentially been, why, yes, we may well rank among Earth's worst people, but your cars won't start without us. And furthermore, if you leave us alone, we'll buy lots more of your fighter planes. Intermittent but ineffectual attempts have been made to break this pattern, and US President Joe Biden has now added to that litany, threatening what he described as consequences following Saudi Arabia's decision to cut production of oil, thereby providing an amount of aid and comfort to Russia. Um, Terry, before we move on to what President Biden might mean by consequences, does what Saudi Arabia is doing make any sense from Saudi Arabia's point of view? It is, it is annoying its patron, protector and ally and the United States. Pleasing Russia, which seems a bit of a dud bet at the moment, is the explanation that they are trying to make the midterms more difficult for this particular administration? Yeah, it, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. I mean, obviously, it's, you know, one of the things that they can do if they want to cause problems is to, is to cut the amount of oil production. But at the same time, you're sort of trying to threaten the states and they're saying, but you, we, we, like, you want to buy more of our stuff, but we're just not letting you buy it, which is kind of a, it's a difficult, you know, it's a difficult line to hold, really. Um, and, yeah, we don't know what these so-called consequences might be. Um, and... Yeah, there is a certain worry about petrol prices, but they they also need to think about the domestic 
consequences of this within the US, which seems to be at the moment that it's mm. hardening the view of Saudi Arabia, particularly among um, the Democrats in the House and in the Senate, the people you know that are up for, for re-election at the moment, and that they're the ones who are kind of threatening slightly more specific consequences. Well, some of the consequences specifically that have been threatened, uh, Jonathan, although not as yet by President Biden, have been threatened by Senator Robert Menendez, the Democrat from New Jersey who is chair of the Foreign Relations Committee. He said that he would freeze look to freeze weapons sales yep. and end security cooperation. Those are pretty dramatic gestures. Is, is it past time the United States started doing yep. things yes. like that? Yes, the US has got to start putting pressure on the Saudis. Uh, we had Biden's visit to Saudi Arabia, the kind of bump fist, uh, we're all kind of friends again. But I think the US has to be much, much clearer in its dealings with Saudi Arabia and make clear that um, it is not going to put up with uh, the kind of taunting, the kind of uh, attitudes that we we're seeing increasingly from the crown prince in particular. I mean, the world, Terry, you would have hoped has learnt a brisk lesson these last eight months about the potential perils of becoming dependent for your energy requirements upon unpleasant and obnoxious regimes. What is the worst that could happen, do you think, if the Western world as a bloc just told Saudi Arabia, we are done with you? Either you kind of agree to drag your kingdom into some way, let's let's be reasonable, about the middle of the 20th century, <laughs> um, or, or this is off. I suppose one of their worries has always been uh, sort of the geopolitics of the situation, the idea that, you know, the House of Saud, we sort of the West basically helped to create it, helped create the country as it is. If they go, you know, we might not like them, but we don't know what comes yeah. next, that there might, might be some kind of uh, political vacuum, that there's more conflict, that, you know, we don't know who would actually have control of the oil. So, you know, they're not people you would like to deal with, but I suppose one slight benefit is that you know know who you're dealing with the fear is that saudi arabia could end yeah, up being run by something worse could, could <laughs> end, being worse yeah, it, yeah. it could end up being run by obnoxious fundamentalists <laughs> yeah. what's interesting on the other side is that here you've got joe biden elected 79 years old sleepy joe etc <laughs> so thought to be you know half asleep most of the time on the job but he's now in major confrontations with russia with china and with saudi arabia Jonathan, I just want to come back to that point about what an actual proper response to Saudi Arabia would look like and what it might result in. It's never been, well, it's been partially clear to me, but never entirely why Saudi Arabia is not treated for all the obvious reasons much as South Africa was uh, throughout the 1970s and 1980s. If the world was just to say to Saudi Arabia, you are now effectively a pariah nation. You can't come to the World Cup. You can't come to the Olympics. We're not going to buy any more of your stuff. That's going to be difficult, but we'll figure it out. Um, what would be the worst that could happen? I think it's the fear, as, as Terry said, that everything could fall to bits uh, in that particular part of the world. Um, as opposed to? <laughs> as opposed to, <laughs> yes. Uh, you may say we, we are sleepwalking towards a disaster here and it's time to wake up. But uh, waking up is quite a difficult process often. Well, let's move along to something entirely more frivolous, which is one of the world's best-known paintings, Botticelli's Birth of Venus. It's also a pretty old one, having been daubed circa the 1480s, and it might have been supposed, therefore, a 
distance out of its copyright. The French fashion house Jean-Paul Gaultier seems to have assumed as much, plastering the artwork across a range of T-shirts, leggings and other garments, only to be surprised by a letter from the learned friends of the Uffizi galleries, reminding them of a quirk of Italian law which holds that copying publicly owned art requires permission and payment. The House of Gautier could be on the hook for €100,000, or about three of their T-shirts. Um, <laughs> Terry, does, does that seem fair enough? Uh, I suppose it seems fair that uh, museums can make some money out of reproduction rights, but if you've probably tried to do copyright clearance on anything belonging to any museum or oh, archive, you will know that it absolutely I have some long and boring makes, stories makes your brain tell. ache just even to think about it, let alone uh, to talk about it. So, you know, yes, I suppose they want to help make some money out, you know, to help keep uh, the museums from falling down, and that there's a, an argument for that. But on the other hand, you know, it's not benefiting the artist anymore there's mm. not it's not a copyright there's not you know Botticelli's heirs and successors don't stand to get anything from it. and I think this is a case of we're going to pick on somebody that is you know famous and well known and able to pay the fee that we want to because I can't imagine they go after every souvenir seller mm. in the streets of Florence who's selling you know fridge magnets with things on you know they can't feasibly do it and uh, yeah I mean, you, you, you can't necessarily claim copyright over something that's 500, 500 years old but if no, they're trying it on you know, yeah <laughs> and so on um, but I, I was just trying to quickly think of the number of t-shirts I have seen in the last week month year and so on with reproductions mm. of artworks that could be copy could be seen as being copyrighted but I think when it's 600 years old that's a pretty moot point should there perhaps then, or could there perhaps then, because I, I, I wonder about this, be a, a different kind of copyright law which basically just declares some artworks off limits on the grounds of of good taste, that them being reproduced outside some contexts somehow devalues, debases or disrespects them. I wondered about this specifically, and our many morbidly attentive readers of our free uh, daily emails will know this. I, I wrote about this upon returning from Madrid uh, a couple of months ago when I went to the NATO summit but stayed for a few days to go to the galleries and so on, and returned with in my luggage, which I, a thing I only bought because I was unsure what I felt about the propriety of it which is a, a coffee mug emblazoned with Picasso's Guernica well, and I bought it from the museum where Guernica is so it's all official and so on and so forth but that it still seems weird to me that such a thing just exists and we're fine with that we are we're, we're fine with it it's it's part of our life i think there and a lot of these artworks have become part of our life and uh, i don't think we want to start letting the lawyers uh, free on this I mean, do you either of you i'll ask you first terry own any souvenirs items of clothing any coffee mugs in fact emblazoned with artworks in arguably debatable taste ah <sighs> I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think why my coffee mugs have got something. I've got a New York Public Library coffee mug. Uh, it hasn't got an artwork on it. Um, but I think you can't stop people using the art for creative purposes. But maybe we're just being snobbish about we don't like it if it's on a coffee mug or like a scarf or a jigsaw puzzle. And, and you know, you can definitely of, there, there the jigsaw puzzles. Definitely so Guernica jigsaw puzzles yeah, were available. Yeah, Guernica jigsaw puzzle. Yes. That's kind of weird. That's kind of strange. But what have you wanted to reinterpret? I mean, it must be loads of people who've reinterpreted the birth of Venus. It is part of the culture in that sense. And, you know, mm. if you want to take something and make a new piece of art in, in using it or in modernising it, then there's no reason you should be stopped from doing that. Jonathan, I, have a, I have a T-shirt which a friend made 
emblazoned with uh, a reproduction of the photograph of General de Gaulle making, <coughs> allegedly making uh, his uh, historic broadcast in June 1940 uh, to the Free French. Now, he wasn't actually photographed at the time, but uh, this photograph came from and I wear it quite, quite happily. Should different rules apply to music and literature, though? At the moment, that's 70 years, and there have been some arguments that that should be extended because we are going to approach the point quite soon, well, relatively soon, at which you can you can easily imagine that somebody who composes a great rock and roll standard in their late teens uh, lives long enough to see that song exit copyright and any Yahoo who fancies it's, it's their 70, chances. 70 years after your death, though, isn't it? It's 70 years, I think, from the song. Oh, is it? Yeah, maybe it's yeah, different from yeah, yeah, other yeah. books. Maybe because I thought books were seventy-five yeah. years after after yes, the yes. after the death of the author. Mind you, so. if anyone copies one of my books and brings out any page on any T-shirt anywhere, they will be sued till kingdom come. <laughs> well, on on, on that uh, <laughs> frankly terrifying note, uh, Jonathan <laughs> Fenby and Terry Stiasny, thank you both for joining us. Uh, and finally, on today's show, Edward Wilson Lee's new book, A History of Water, is not, though the title strongly suggests a history of water. It is rather both a detective story, an investigation of sorts into a 500-year-old cold case, and a meditation on travel and progress and whether the former necessarily leads to the latter. Wilson Lee's book is set in 16th century Portugal and revolves around two very different men, both genuine figures in Portuguese history. One a diligent and modest archivist and philosopher, the other a swashbuckling poet. I spoke to Edward Wilson Lee earlier and began by asking him to introduce the victim at the heart of this murder mystery. I came across him as an archivist, which seems like a sort of slightly unpromising subject for a story about the 16th century and its encounter with the wider world. But he was the archivist of the Torre de Tombo archive in Lisbon. And I'm interested in the ways in which global information flows changed around the time of print and around the time of European encounters, the wider world. But as soon as I came across Damiao, I immediately fell in love with him in that he has this sort of magpie-like curiosity about the wider world. So, you know, his writings are filled with observations about the culture of Ethiopians and the Salmi people, or Laplanders, but also, you know, the strange and wonderful things that were being encountered that they weren't quite sure whether or not they were real. So, mermen and literate elephants and things like that. And the fact that he dies in a mysterious and provoking way uh, was a sort of gift narratively. So um, it allowed me to construct the story of his life as a murder mystery. I did wonder what you ended up making of his character and, and how alienated he ended up becoming from the world of his time. Because as you've alluded to, he undertook an amount of travelling that would be considered remarkable now. But in the 16th century must have elevated him into a sort of aristocracy of travellers barely numbering in the triple digits. He gets to meet Martin Luther, Ignatius Loyola and Erasmus. How different was his view of the world from almost everybody else's? You're right. I mean, he's got this wonderful sort of zealig or Forrest Gump-like capacity to be to just happen to be present at every major moment of the 16th century. As you say, he gets around an enormous amount. And I think, you know, one of the interesting things about him is that he lives as a, at a sort of watershed moment. There's a moment in the early 16th century when European encounters, you know, the European horizons are really widening and opening up. And there are a lot of people like Damiao who are you know, really open to what the wider world has to offer. But it really is a, 
a period in which the shadows start to lengthen and uh, people become slightly suspicious of, of what is coming in from the outside world. And so Danielle's life is one of, of living through this period of, of transition. So yes, I mean, you know, he's, he's someone who, as I say, the first half of his life is spent traveling in Lithuania and Russia and, and Eastern Europe and meeting people and sharing their knowledge of the world and their ways of thinking about the world. And then he retires for his second half of his life and lives locked up in the archive in Lisbon. But that, in some ways, is an even greater kind of mm. global network since the Portuguese were at the forefront of Europe's encounters with the wider world in the 16th century. So he's receiving all of these reports from West Africa and Mozambique from India and Brazil and Japan and China. And he's among the people forging a new way or attempting to forge a new way in which to conceive the world. At which point we should introduce his antagonist for the purposes of your narrative, the rascal poet whose works have terrorised subsequent generations of Portuguese schoolchildren. Yeah, so this is the Camões, Luís de Camões, who is the Portuguese national poet and whose life runs parallel to Daniel's in a great number of ways. We don't actually know if they knew each other, although their paths cross at a number of points. But Camões is a very different kind of figure, as you've alluded to. He's jailbait, he's constantly bankrupt and getting into brawls, and he is essentially sent out to India as an exile of sorts, as a punishment for a brawl that he gets into in, in Lisbon. And so in some ways he sees more of the world than Daniel did. He spends time in India, he went to Macau in China and may have gone to Japan as well. And he ends up writing the great Portuguese national epic, the Lusiads, which is this heroic story of Vasco da Gama's first voyage to India, and which creates the story of European global travel as an epic, heroic adventure, hmm. crossing over many of the rather more tawdry and, and less heroic aspects of it. I was struck by that observation early on in the book, at least, that after 500 years of globalisation and interconnectivity, uh, much more so now than ever, it is astonishing how little most Europeans actually know about Africa, Asia, South America. I, I was thinking if you went out into the street and stopped 100 people and asked them to name literally any citizen of China other than Xi Jinping, how many people might struggle to do that? Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, a lot of this has to do with which, with the ways in which we conceive of history and the ways in which we write and teach history and the ways in which we conceive of, of similarity. And there's this enormous drive, again, which Camoys was very involved in to construct genealogies. So, you know, school children learn about Greek and Roman history and then about European history as if somehow the peoples of Greece and Rome and of Charlemagne's France or Tudor England are more similar to them than people elsewhere. And it constructs this notion that we are somehow identical to the people who lived in our geographic area in the past and very different from people elsewhere. So yes, you know, the fact that people are not reading the Ramayana for their GCSEs or studying Mayan history or whatever, I think it contributes to this ongoing sense of difference from others, which has real problems when we come to try and tackle global issues like climate change and COVID and all of those things. Just finally, and no spoilers, obviously, but I do want to ask, I guess, a question of investigative technique when you're looking at the the pillar of your plot here. How do you go about investigating a 500-year-old murder? 
Yes, I mean, it's a very, very cold case, if you will have it that way. <laughs> um, I suppose being a literary scholar and a student of narrative, one of the things that reading a lot of narrative trains you to do is to, to think of what would make sense in a particular set of events. So I suppose, you know, and, and again, the archive is like a puzzle box, like a a labyrinth. And so I suppose what you do is you you head into the archive and you start to sniff out trails and see where, where they lead you. And of course, the trails of this particular cold case led to all sorts of interesting things. I hope a very compelling theory about how exactly the murder took place. That was Ed Will- Edward Wilson Lee talking about his new book, A History of Water, which is available now. And that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Terry Stiasny and Jonathan Fenby. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Emily Sands. Our sound engineer was Adam Heaton. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Listener.